WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, November 12th, 2023. Thank you for joining the broadcast. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor Publisher of the Outdoor News. We are wrapping up our second weekend of the firearms deer season. In fact, uh, the 3A season would be done down in southeastern Minnesota this Saturday, November 18th. The 3B will kick off. We will still have deer hunting, of course, in the north of this coming week and next weekend. So lots of opportunity out there to continue hunting deer with a firearm. I will offer some thoughts on how the first weekend went, probably a little later in the broadcast. Spoiler alert, it didn't go real well. Most of this week's show I'm going to dedicate to a two-part interview with a gentleman named Craig Boddington. He is a professional outdoors writer, been around since the 1970s, and one of the last unapologetic big game hunters. A gentleman who's hunted almost every species of big game around the world during his lengthy career. And a man I've been reading since I was a kid in the 1980s. So I'm really looking forward to interviewing Craig Boddington here in about 10 minutes or so. so please stay tuned for that. If you have any interest in hunting places like Africa or the Arctic, uh, you're going to want to listen to that. But before we interview Craig, which will be after the first break, I want to squeeze in a quick interview with someone from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. We got a press release about a public meeting, uh, an online public meeting that's going to be held this Tuesday, November 14th. So I thought, why don't we talk about that a little bit so folks can uh, listen in and find out what it's all about. Uh, Leslie McEnley, she's the DNR's Wildlife Populations and Regulations Manager, joins us now. And uh, Leslie, we've got uh, feral pigs and released mink on our mind, huh? Yeah, we do. Uh, Thanks for bringing me on today. I guess the the 2023 legislature directed the DNR and other state agencies to kind of review the authority behind managing feral pigs and develop, you know, some policies around how we handle these potentially exotic species if they become a problem here. We should probably first establish that we don't have a quote unquote problem with either of these species yet. We're trying to be proactive, it sounds like. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. We do not have an established population of feral pigs in the state. And no, it's not it's not a concern in terms of the captive mink, the fur farms that we currently have out there right now. There's just a handful of folks that are actually farming mink. And, and that concern came about just uh, related to news that was coming out, especially from Europe in terms of uh, mink having COVID. So that's what, that's what I believe kind of brought attention to the captive mink that we have in the state. We talk about the feral pig thing a lot. Uh, it seems like every couple of years, either the, you know, the DNR magazine or Outdoor News, or the Star Tribune, or some media outlet does a story about this potential looming crisis. It, it hasn't really happened yet. Occasionally, you'll get a report of a of a pig that's gone wild, but it's not a problem like it is down south. You don't have to go too far south, though, right, to to encounter feral pig problems. They cause all sorts of issues with native vegetation. And what's another thing that's kind of interesting is we always look south. It sounds like there's a few feral pigs up in Canada that could work their way down into Minnesota. Yeah, and the pigs up in Canada has been, really been what kind of brought this to attention here in the state, at least at, at the legislative level, recent news about pigs nearing the um, U.S.-Canadian border. No evidence that they are close to the Minnesota border, but they are um, nearing, they're um, observed nearing North Dakota border. And so that is definitely something that we're looking at in terms of the potential expansion of, of those animals into our state. Leslie, there might be a few uh, middle-aged or older hunters like myself who kind of rub their chin and say, hmm, uh, feral pigs, that sounds like a, like a good opportunity for some hunting here in Minnesota. A bad idea, right, all the way around? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Once uh, feral pigs are established, they're really hard to control. You know, they just reproduce like crazy and wreak all sorts of havoc on, on natural resources. And, and to control them effectively, you, it, you can't do that through hunting. You really need to right. have very targeted removal of these, you know, these sounders, these um, family groups that are out there on the landscape. Yeah, I know uh, states where they are getting established, they discourage hunting because hunting tends to spread them out and makes them more wary. So uh, we want to be clear, this is not a new opportunity for state hunters. So tell us what you got cooking here. What What is the plan with these other agencies? And, and tell us about your goals to gather some public input on this process. Yeah, so we've um, just, you know, the legislation came through last spring. And so we've uh, been coordinating a, a team of staff from the Board of Animal Health and the Department of Agriculture and Department of Health and Minnesota DNR have been working together just to collectively talk about what our roles and responsibilities are related to mink, looking at the statutory language and trying to identify where there might be some gaps or where we're finding challenges. We don't really have any specific program, you know, how to deal with feral pigs. Uh, none of these agencies do. Our staff collaborate really well when incidents happen, but it's really important, given that we don't have a, a, a clear program or one agency that interacts with pigs or mink, it's important to know who to go to and, and you know, how we as a state will efficiently and effectively address, you know, any risks that come about if we've got, a, for example, an escaped pig on the landscape. So the DNR and these other agencies is asking the public uh, to share their perspectives via an online questionnaire. You can go to mndnr.gov uh, and go under news, I presume, and it's it's right now, it's, it's probably near the top is one of the press releases. That's probably one of the easiest ways to get there. Also, you're going to have an online public meeting on Tuesday evening. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so we're going to have an online meeting, just kind of go over sort of the different responsibilities, how these different agencies respond to some of these incidents, and then really open it up. Before we get too far into developing the report, we really wanted to get a sense of how the public perceives management of these animals or, or what concerns might be out there as well. And, and uh, so we're opening up this meeting kind of pretty early in the process before any, you know, there's no report to be reviewed yet. We're, we're going to be drafting it and the public could comment either at the meeting or through that um, online question or emails directly to me will inform the development of that report. Uh, registration not required in advance for this meeting. It runs from 6.30 to 8 p.m. on this Tuesday, November 14th. You'll be providing more of an overview as well as other folks from the agency. Again, go to mndnr.gov, go under news, uh, and look for the press release. You'll find all the links to that online public meeting. And I presume also you mentioned uh, folks can comment directly to you, what, through Tuesday, November 28th, pretty much till uh, almost the end of the month, huh? Yep, almost to the end of the month. And I, do you mind if I if I throw out your email? It's leslie.mcinnely, M-C-I-N-E-N-L-Y, at state.mn.us. Again, you can go to mndnr.gov and see all this information. And after all this public input is done, what's the timeline to kind of get, is there, is there a plan to get a complete report together? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty tight timeline, actually. We are going to be delivering it to the legislature mid-February. So we'll be pulling things together quite quickly. Perfect. Well, get involved right now if you're a member of the public and you want to chime in on this process. Leslie, thanks a lot for joining us. Sometimes I see the word proactive in a press release and I get a little scared, but I'm glad the DNR <laughs> is tackling this one. We don't, uh, this is a, an issue, a problem we don't want in Minnesota. Yeah. Thanks for getting the word out, Rob. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Take care. Leslie McEnany from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Let's break. When we return, my two-part interview with professional outdoors writer and hunter Craig Boddington. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors.
Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on this Sunday, November 12th, 2023. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor-Publisher of Outdoor News and the host here on this broadcast every week. Very happy to introduce a two-part interview we are going to do with Craig Boddington. If you read the print version of Outdoor News, you saw the quick chat that we printed in this week's edition, my interview with Mr. Boddington. He's based down in Kansas, also has a place in California. Former Marine, but he's been an outdoor writer focusing on big game trophy hunting really since the late 1970s. We jump into my interview with Mr. Boddington right now. Well, gosh, thanks a lot for carving out time uh, chatting with Craig Boddington, uh, very well known, uh, arguably one of the best known big game hunters in the world. Uh, we appreciate you joining us here today, Craig. You live down in Texas now, but that's not where you're from originally, right? No, I'm I'm from Kansas originally. We actually live on the California Central Coast, but I've I've got a farm in southern Kansas, and so I'm I'm at the Kansas farm today. You were in the Corps, then you started outdoor writing. Were you outdoor writing? Even while you were still in the Marines, or, or I was, I, I was doing some freelance writing when, uh, oh my gosh, from the very beginning, and really, really even before I I went in, into the Marines, I was doing a little freelance writing, <laughs> not terribly successfully at that time. I was very young, but I started early and uh, uh, got off active duty the first time in '79, uh, and uh, was working in Los Angeles and. Uh, met Bob Peterson and the folks mm. at Peterson Publishing and, mm-hmm. and uh, they offered me a job and I went to work for them uh, in 79. And so I'm still writing for the same magazines I, I was writing for 44 years ago. So where can folks see your content now in the Peterson's pubs, as well as your books? And uh, I mostly write for uh, Peterson's hunting magazine and guns and ammo magazine and rifle shooter. And uh, those are the magazines that, uh, that used to be Peterson publishing company uh, now, now owned by uh, Cronky sports enterprises. Uh, the outdoor sportsman group is, mm-hmm. is the name of it. And then I write for some other magazines as well. I, I write for sports Field and the safari magazine and, uh, and uh, a few others, and uh, I've written a lot of books, and uh, I don't even know how many titles are still in print, but, uh, oh, at least 15. You do some filming, right? You do some video, some TV? Not as much as I used to, but okay. yes. Uh, in fact, I'm going up to Hornady from here uh, to, to do uh, some filming for Guns and Ammo TV, so I'm still involved with that. Uh, I've done a number of hunting TV shows, but pandemic really... Uh, shut that down a lot, sure. and and it's a good thing. So I've, I'm mm-hmm. not doing as much TV filming as I used to, but I'm still involved with Guns and Ammo TV. You tell me if my perception is wrong, but you, you seem to be an unapologetic big game hunter. Uh, and it, in my in my opinion, there's not a lot of those guys left. <laughs> you know, big game trophy hunting, it's, it's not necessarily for everyone, even a lot of hunters. Why has it been for you? Well, I've I've always been driven to see different places and and new places, and uh, uh, I started when I was young, and I've I've been fortunate. I've had a tremendous amount of opportunity, uh, and I I believe in it, uh, especially in in third world uh, hunters are the ones that uh, that pay for wildlife management. Now we do that in this country through our license fees and through funding from the Pittman Robertson Act, and and that was the way it was set up many, many years ago. And certainly we've been very, very successful with uh, our North American model of wildlife conservation. But uh, elsewhere, elsewhere, and, and especially in third world economies, they do it differently. Hunters pay the way without selective. And obviously it has to be selective and it has to be managed. But uh, 
uh, elsewhere in the world w- without hunting, there would simply be be no wildlife. The Africa is a, a wonderful example. Uh, I mean, to us, uh, lions and elephants and uh, buffalo and hippos and even crocodiles are beautiful and interesting animals that uh, that we want to uh, we want to see and we love to take photographs of. But uh, to the local Africans, uh, these are dangerous menaces. They uh, sure. Uh, they're dangerous to their children. They uh, they eat their livestock. And the uh, the only countries in Africa where wildlife really still flourishes and and, and persists are the hunting country. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's about fifty sovereign nations on the African continent, and and there are about twenty uh, right now that have organized sport hunting. And and the countries that have organized sport hunting are really the only ones that have wildlife in viable numbers. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, a lot of that continent has been wiped slick. Now, most countries have parks, and and certainly there's a room and there's a place for for protected enclaves like parks that are used for photographic. But uh, other than the hunting countries, Outside of those 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 parks and reserves that are protected enclaves, there's very little, little wildlife remaining. So I believe in it, and yes, it's it's been an important part of my life. When you were growing up, did you read uh, some of the classic writing about safari hunting, big game hunting? I'm I'm personally on a Hemingway kick. I, I read Green Hills of Africa. I'm working on uh, True at First Light right now. I'm wondering if any of those writers inspired you uh, to do what you're doing today. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I started reading about it when, when I was a kid. Uh, uh, I grew up uh, in Kansas City and uh, going to Africa was a pretty weird thing in those days. Nobody <laughs> did that. But uh, uh, my mother's only brother, my uncle, uh, went on safari in Tanganyika in 1954. It was a collecting expedition for the Kansas City Museum of Natural History. But 1956. I'm sorry. Uh, and at the time, I was I was four years old, but I remember so clearly saying, "I'm going to do that someday." And uh, it became uh, it, it was a dream that uh, I never let go of. Uh, I discovered uh, uh, Green Hills of Africa and, and Robert Ruark and uh, Karamoja Bell and uh, Corbett, uh, oh, sure, the Tiger yeah. Hunter Corbett, mm-hmm. and uh, some of those uh, and J. A. Hunter uh, in the the uh, junior high library. I started reading this stuff and I, I became obsessed. I started saving my pennies and uh, I was 24 years old when I went to Africa for the first time. And the, the purpose was to get it out of my system once and for all. And that didn't work worth a darn. <laughs> That's great. Are there any misconceptions about African hunting that you uh, maybe bump into? Obviously, there's a lot with the general public, but I suspect even among the hunting public, there's some misconceptions about sure. what happens when uh, you go hunting in Africa. Yeah, there there absolutely is. I uh, People tend to not understand it. And even hunters will look at you uh, and say, my goodness, well, you can't still hunt elephants, can you? And well, yes, there are half a dozen countries that are where elephants are overpopulated and, and uh, hunting is, is an important part of the management. I, I've done that and I have absolutely no desire to uh, ever hunt another elephant. I, I really don't, but I, I'll defend it uh, because it's important and essential to management. Uh, uh, here in my neighborhood in Kansas, uh, uh, the farmers complain bitterly if uh, 15 or 20 whitetails get into the soybean field or, or the cornfield and, uh, and start uh, 
start eating start eating the stalks down and uh, making a mess of things. And uh, if you were a rural African, would you rather have 15 or 20 elephants in your cornfield? My perception seems to be among some of the younger folks that there's a little less emphasis on trophy hunting these days. It's more, you know, focus on the locavore thing, the eat local, just the whole food side. Does that leave a little hole in your heart? I'm just wondering, do you, do you just feel like, gosh, where, 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 are, the, where are the young people that want to go, uh, that, that want to go stock a Cape Buffalo or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you don't perceive that. I'm just curious, you know, what, what you think of what I just kind of described there. <clears throat> I do perceive that. I, I think you're exactly right. I, you know, there, there is less interest. And, and of course, you know, the word trophy in itself is, is uh, a greatly misused term. Unfortunately, people kind of equate that with, with going hunting and, and uh, taking the, the horns or the, or the skin or the, or the antlers and, and leaving the rest. And that's simply not true. In, in so many places, it's totally illegal. Uh, I was just in Alaska last week, and and my goodness, the the law there. Uh, you take a moose or a caribou or or a sheep. Uh, heavens, if you leave a scrap of meat in the field, you that's a violation. You have to bring it all out, and that's generally the case. Uh, uh, in that, yes, you're you're there for the you want the the largest horns or antlers you can find, but but you also but the meat is is going to be absolutely utilized. And, and that's a, a, a misconception. Uh, hunting in foreign countries is, is totally misunderstood. Uh, we've, we've talked about Africa, but, but Asia is, is the same. Uh, in the, the numerous countries of Asia that, that are open to hunting, the foreign hunter is, is really important. Uh, he pays the license fees. Uh, he brings employment to, to the local people. And uh, you bet that meat is going to be utilized. Uh, when a Cape buffalo is taken in Africa, heavens, when, uh, when, when we're finished, there's barely a wet spot left on the ground. A village will congregate and, and take every scrap of meat, and mm-hmm. they absolutely need it. I, I don't know if you know Melissa Bachman, gal up here in Minnesota. Sure. She, she, yeah, she's done a bang-up job, a hard, hard-working gal. I really she's respect awesome. her. She's awesome. Yeah, she, she took some heat a few years ago, some social media pictures. I don't know if it was an elephant or what it was. Is that something you've dealt with in your career? You dealt with, with some hate from folks who oppose hunting? I mean, you're like I say, you're unapologetic about who you are. Have you dealt with some backlash to that? Absolutely. Social uh, media or whatever? You know, it's it, it's part of the deal. I'm 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 really kind of I'm very jealous of Melissa be, because a lot of that hate seems to be directed towards women. I don't get near as much of it as she does, and so I'm <laughs> totally jealous of her profile. Uh, but seriously, the, the women who hunt, and there are many, and my daughters, and and Melissa, and my wife, and many many more, they are attacked viciously. Uh, uh, I I get some heat now and again, and and I'm very very careful about what I post. Uh, and you have to be. You have to. You have to understand people's sensitivities. Uh, again, you get into the the perceived difference between trophy hunting and subsistence hunting. And uh, uh, it seems that as long as you're sensible and and tasteful, you can you can talk about deer hunting all day long because deer are understood to be a, a food animal. You start posting. Iconic animals like like uh, elephants, uh, giraffes. Uh, well, you know, in Africa, those are food animals too. But uh, but if you uh, if you post a, a photograph of hunting those kind of animals or the cats, uh, even bears, uh, you're going to get some heat because people don't understand it. 
You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Jerislein from OutdoorNews.com with an exclusive interview with professional outdoors writer and hunter Craig Boddington. Part two of our interview after these messages. Welcome back to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, November 12th, 2023. As we speak, the firearms deer hunting season wrapping up in parts of the state. That 3A season ends today. Then we take uh, this coming week off. Then 3B will kick off next Saturday, the 18th. I hope everybody has enjoyed a safe and productive hunting season for Minnesota's number one big game, the white-tailed deer. With that, let's jump back into my two-part interview with professional outdoors writer and big game hunter, Craig Boddington. I would like to talk a little about outdoors writing, the state of outdoors writing. You remember the glory days, I would say, of, of outdoors writing when storytelling was, uh, I, in my opinion, a much bigger part of it than it is today. Is the storytelling era over in outdoor writing, or do you still feel free to do that and that there's still the public still dem- wants some of that? They still demand some of that. Obviously, it depends on the, on the publication, but uh, things have changed tremendously, and, and certainly the, the printed publications are not nearly as powerful as they were when when I was young there's there's uh, so much on the internet I, I think uh, people today certainly younger people are reading less uh, relying more on the internet relying less on on the printed page so the magazines are smaller but it still works for me uh, of course I'm I'm nearly done you know my career is nearly over so it's not a concern for me but it is a concern for the younger writers coming up, and and things have changed. Uh, when I started, uh, uh, a normal feature was uh, a feature was about three thousand words, sure, and that yeah. was not a problem. Well, that's <laughs> today. That's a lot of words. Today, yeah. the average editor wants wants you to tell the story in eighteen hundred to maybe twenty two hundred words, and that is a lot shorter. And it's very very difficult to really tell a detailed story. Uh, in that amount of word space. So the it, it has changed. It's changed a lot. Uh, uh, from my standpoint, not for the better, but uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not in control of these things. You must encounter a lot of other hunters when you're traveling. I'm just curious, do you have any tips for them? You know, what, what errors do you see big game hunters making? And research is key. Uh, research is part of preparation, but, you know, get in shape and spend a lot of time at the range and, uh, you have to understand that uh, the the wonderful thing about hunting is there are no guarantees. So you have to understand that you're going to try as hard as you can, but uh, you can control where you go by by doing your research, and uh, you can control yourself and make sure that you have the right gear and that you're uh, able to uh, whether you're hunting with gun or bow or whatever uh, you, that you're able to take and make the shot when it offers. But uh, there are things you can't control. You can't control the weather uh, and you can't control game movement, which can change from year to year. So you, and, and that's really part of the charm of it to me is, is the absolute complete uncertainty. When you go on a hunt, you have no idea what's going to happen. I just got back from Alaska, had a, had a wonderful time. I was uh, hunting bear on the Alaskan peninsula, which is uh, only open uh, uh, odd falls and even spring. So it's uh hunted uh, this fall and then uh, we'll be hunted spring 24, then not again till 25. But mm. heavens, I think I've had this hunt planned for five years. I spent the whole season, 14 days, and uh, we had absolutely awful weather, 50 mile an hour winds. And uh, one period, it, uh, it rained straight for 48 hours. Uh, 
didn't get a bear, never had a chance. Uh, saw a big bear three times, made three different long, laborious stalks. And, and I'm not as young as I once was. That uh, uh, walking in the muskeg is not as easy as it used <laughs> to be. It's certainly not as easy as it would for, would be for you. Saw a big bear three times, took a couple hours to get to where he was last seen. We're certain he's gone into this particular patch of alders and absolutely pulled a vanishing act. Oof. Never saw him up close. And uh, so the hunt winds down and uh, I come home empty and uh, maybe I'll have time to try again. Maybe I won't. People see the byline and they forget about, they don't understand the work part. They see the glamour, right? They see the, the beautiful pictures and maybe that, that final hero shot. Uh, but there's a lot of work that goes into the actual hunt as well as the preparation that you mentioned. Just shooting uh, and, and probably testing new rounds has got to be a big part of your of your life, right? I mean, how much time do you, do you estimate you spend testing equipment for Peterson's or, or maybe some of your other applications that you write for? Oh, tremendous amount of time on the range because I, you know, a lot of the writing I do is is hunting, and uh, a lot of the writing I do is semi technical, evaluating firearms and cartridges and bullets and optics and the whole gamut. And then uh, a lot of the writing I do is crossover, as in guns for big bears and uh, proper bullets for this and that. So a lot of a lot I do is crossover, but it takes up. A lot of time on the range, measuring bullet speed, chronographs, so that you know exactly what the load's doing. Uh, in Kansas and in California, I think at the moment, I've got five different chronographs. Obviously, you're a big centerfire guy because you're, 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 you're a big game hunter. Do you mess around with birds? Do you, you, you do any smoothbore hunting in sure. the U.S.? Or uh, that, that's what I grew up with. Dad was a, was a quail and pheasant hunter. He never even understood my, my, uh, my great uh, passion for Africa. Uh, he never went with me, tried to talk him into it, and he, he didn't do it. Uh, he was a fighter pilot in World War II. And, oh, wow. Uh, when he turned off the switch in 1945, he said uh, he swore he would never again fly over blue water, and he never did. So I, I tried to get him to go to Africa with me several times. He, he wouldn't. Now, we did have some great hunts in Canada and uh, in, in the West, so we had some great hunts together. But bird hunting is what I grew up with. My grandfather mm -hmm. was a was an avid bird hunter, and, and dad was, and we always had bird dogs. So that's what I grew up with, and I, I love shooting a shotgun. I'm not as good as I once was, but I actually put myself through college shooting trap. I was on the uh, All-America teams when I was a kid. So I have to throw out the obligatory, do you have a favorite species that you've hunted over all these years? Looking back, is there uh, one species that you just love to hunt more than any other? Got to be white-tailed deer like yeah. everybody else. All right, have well. a Wonderful time here at the Kansas farm, and uh, but white-tailed deer, because they're so unpredictable and they are so frustrating. And, uh, you know, the Kansas I grew up in, I was a bird hunter, but we didn't have any deer. Kansas uh, deer were declared extinct in Kansas in 1925, and we didn't have a modern deer season until 1964. So I was a teenager before. So deer, deer hunting, man, man, that was big stuff. That yeah. was adventure. That was forbidden <laughs> fruit to hunt deer. We had to go someplace else. Uh -huh. And so white-tailed deer, my passion, just like millions of other American hunters. I'm curious, uh, the, the term conservationist, what you make of that term, how that plays into in your life and your radar is being a conservationist, uh, you know, a personal priority for Craig Boddington. And, and how does that practically unfold for you? Well, absolutely it is. Uh, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the wonderful job we've, we've done in this country with our, our North American model of wildlife conservation. And we, this is a rags to riches story. In 1900, 
uh, virtually everything in uh, North America was, uh, certainly in the United States, was in trouble. And uh, we we started to bring it back. And uh, the model that, that we set up is that uh, uh, is that hunters and fishermen pay for wildlife management and and uh, fishery fishery management in, in on this continent. It's been just incredibly successful. My goodness, uh, something like thirty five million white tailed deer in the United States right now. Now they were never endangered, but it's believed that uh, in nineteen hundred there may have only been half a million left. 35 million today. So, so we've done a really good job uh, on this continent. I, I'm proud of that. And I, I'm really also proud of the job that's been done elsewhere, although their management is, is quite different. Uh, in much of the world, uh, wildlife is privatized. Uh, and that's not the case here. Uh, we believe that wildlife is a public trust resource. Uh, that's the first and most important tenet of our North American model is that Wildlife belongs to everybody. And so I've got a farm here in Kansas and I've got a certain number of deer on it. Uh, probably varies from day to day, but I don't own those deer and they can only be hunted subject to uh, to state mandated seasons and, and licenses. You've had extensive travels already this fall. Any any other plans uh, for, for autumn 2023 and, and this winter, Craig? Uh, in November, I've got an elk hunt in Colorado, and then mm. I'll be back here in Kansas for our uh, for our deer season. Uh, we've got a long and luxurious archery season here. The uh, the rut usually peaks right before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. uh, and then our rifle season is always uh, twelve days, starting the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. So okay. that's one of my big events, and uh, I'll be here for that. And uh, Beyond that, uh, I don't really have a lot of plans for next year. Uh, uh, the bears uh, in Alaska eluded me completely last week, <laughs> but uh, I'll probably go back in the spring and try again before yeah. I get too old to handle that muskeg. Craig, thanks so much for carving out more than a half an hour here with me. I really appreciate it. This You're incredibly gracious. I met you at Game Fair up here, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, and you were incredibly gracious now, and I'm not surprised to find you the same way today. So thank you. Thanks a million. You yeah. have a great day. Craig, thanks a lot. Have a great uh, rest of your week and weekend. All right. Thanks. Well, dear listeners, that was a thrill for me. I have been reading Craig Boddington since I was in middle school myself back in the early 1980s, and I appreciate him joining us here for a couple of segments. That was an edited version of our interview. I wasn't able to get it all in this week's show. Uh, You can go to OutdoorNews.com and read the quick chat, which was the text-edited version of my interview with him. But at the end, you can click a link and hear our complete chat, which was over 30 minutes. With that, let's get in a break. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline on this Sunday, November 12th, 2023. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's broadcast. I want to thank Leslie McEnany, who joined us near the start of the show, to talk a little bit about this public meeting the DNR's got going on. It's an online public meeting uh, this Tuesday evening, November 14th. I believe it runs from 6.30 to 8 p.m. It's an online meeting. You can go to mndnr.gov. Look under news and click the news release on uh, feral pigs and mink. Interesting combination to see all the details to participate in that. Also, thank you, Craig Boddington, who spent a couple segments with me talking about his experiences traveling around the world hunting big game and uh, generally just enjoying the life of a professional hunter. Not a lot of those guys left. 
with my final few minutes of this week's broadcast, thought we would chat a little bit about what's going on with deer hunting. Last weekend's opening two days of the firearms deer hunting season did not go real well. Deer harvest was down 13% for the weekend. And if you recall my conversation with Barb Keller, uh, one of the DNR deer managers on this show a couple weeks ago, you know that that opening weekend is really important in terms of overall deer kill in the state of Minnesota. I think she said, what, upwards of 30% of the deer kill, 30 to 40% can occur that weekend. And so if that's down, it doesn't bode well for overall harvest. I was lamenting how long it's been since we eclipsed 200,000 for a total statewide deer kill. And given how low it was that opening weekend, we're not going to come anywhere near 200,000 again this year. Um, If you do some of the math, the total harvest last weekend was 47,370. So, I mean, if that's 30%, uh, you're looking at you know what a deer kill of 150, 160 thousand. Now, as I've mentioned in on social media and my columns from other places, we got a lot of runway left, right? There's a lot of opportunity. We got some warm temperatures coming up uh, this week that should keep guys and gals out in the deer stands, keep them afield. Uh, still not too warm for deer, so that they'll stop moving. I you know so I think hunters should be afield, deer should be moving. That's a recipe for some pretty good deer hunting out there. The other issue that is a little disturbing for someone like me who works in the outdoor industry, right, and wants to see people participating and buying newspapers and visiting websites is the issue of overall decreasing deer license sales. Through last weekend, through opener weekend, Sunday, December 5th, the total firearms license sales was at 376536 That's a lot lower than that round number we hear some of the big media in this town throwing out where they say a half million people will be heading a field to go deer hunting. Well, no, it's more than 20% below that number, 376,536 as of last weekend. Now, again, we've got like the 3B season coming up next Saturday. There'll be some separate sales for that. And like I said, we got some good weather coming up. We might have some people that over Thanksgiving say, hey, you know what? I, I will buy a 3B tag or, or do some bow hunting. Maybe I'll buy a crossbow. We've talked about how crossbows are legal. Uh, maybe I will go out and give it a shot. But that number through last weekend is 4% below 2022, despite the fact that we've had pretty darn good hunting weather. It's not like we can blame it on a snowstorm or a downpour in the rain or ultra-frigid cold. It's been pretty comfortable hunting conditions for folks to sit out and, and try to corner a deer. The other thing about that tally, 376.536 through last weekend, is it is the lowest number for that same date of any deer season this century. Looking at a spreadsheet that the Minnesota DNR issued, that number was as high as 446,000 in 2012. That was probably the peak high for that date this century. Back in 2000, it was 435. And then it kind of climbed there the first decade of this century when we had a lot of deer, go figure. And then it's been on kind of a steady decline, a couple, two, three percent every year. And only the past three years has it been below 400,000, 399 in 2021, 392 last year. And then a 4% decline, like I say, going into this year, 376, 536. Obviously, a lot of factors going into that, but we'll monitor that the rest of the season to see if we can turn those license sales and that deer harvest around a little bit. Final note, the Minnesota DNR reported a couple of new chronic wasting disease positive cases. Those are both deer that died before the firearms deer season. 
As of November 3rd, the state had tested 437 deer for CWD and only come up with those two positives. There probably will be more as testing of deer taken during the firearms hunt gets underway. One of the positives was in the Grand Rapids area, the other down in the Northfield area. And obviously that's not good. We don't want to find any new chronic wasting disease cases, but it could be worse. Wisconsin? That state has logged 145 new CWD cases this fall. That was through November 3rd. So those are strictly bow hunting related cases. And of course, their firearms deer season, when there potentially could be a lot more, begins this Saturday, November 18th. With that, folks, I am out of time for this week's broadcast. Thank you to all our guests and all the listeners who've joined us for the past hour. Everybody have a great week out of doors. I'm Rob Dreesline, signing off for WCCO Outdoors.